Do I mark this episode clean or explicit? Ah, you be the judge. Pop culture and interviews, the best and worst of movies and reviews. The old, the new, the in between. The movies mirror reality. So we'll talk, have fun, we'll listen and explore. You are the curious, we are the curious audience. Hello folks, welcome to The Curious Audience. It's me, Luke Ryan, again, and thank you for joining us for another episode of The Curious Audience. This week, our daily, weekly double, daily double, I don't know, fortnightly double, two episodes this week (laughs) coming your way. And I mean, I've been delving into these interviews the last couple of weeks and meeting so many interesting and amazing people. And man, I'm craving some movies. I really hope the cinemas start opening up soon and we get some new releases going so that we can um, start balancing this channel out a bit more and um, review some new movies. Talk to some um, people about that. It'd be really interesting. But anyway, really interesting episode for you today. Um, This week, I sat down with Kim Robertson, who is a psychosexual therapist or a sex therapist as is more commonly known and man she just let me go for it I asked tons of different questions Um, nothing was really off limits and really interesting answers and I'm so glad that I got a bit of a laugh out of her with one of my questions so you know wait for that it's a good one so let's dive right into this interview with me and Kim Robinson Welcome to the podcast today. Lovely to meet you, Luke. So, Kim, you're a a sex therapist. Is that the right terminology? Yeah, absolutely. Um, We sort of go by quite a few different um, terms. Uh, Sex therapist is probably the most casual and most comfortable. Um, I personally, in a professional setting, tend to go with psychosexual therapist because it gives a bit of a nod to the counselling techniques that we use. Yeah. And it can help to reduce um, some funny expectations that sometimes people have when they're ringing up and they might want a different type of service. So it's very clearly counselling only, not touch. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that makes sense because if you have the general term, which I just said, you, you do think more physical, like you're helping with the physicality of it. But I imagine there's more of a mental and emotional need from a lot of patients. Absolutely. So my my practice is very strictly no touch, no touch, no nudity, no nothing like that. It is just counselling, you know, and so it just helps to reduce how many of those types of inquiries that you might get. Um, And so, yeah, from a professional point of view, I I go with psychosexual therapist. But another term that um, many of us use is sexologist because we've studied sex. Okay. And who typically goes and sees someone like you? Look, honestly, everyone, yeah. everyone, I think from, um, you know, single people to, you know, long-term married couples, um, you know, couples who are sort of both in their, in their twenties right through to, you know, couples in their eighties. Um, so yeah, wow. sort of just absolutely everything. <laughs> That's interesting. I'm trying to think what would an 80 year old couple be talking about, but I imagine it's probably the same as any couple, it's keeping that spark alive and connections and. 
Yep, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as we get older, we have uh, more sort of physical things that are going to be coming into the picture with our, our health. And so that's going to be playing a part in our sex lives as well as our everyday life. And so how do you address problems of a sexual nature while making that patient feel comfortable, especially in that first meeting? I imagine they're, they're very awkward to start off with. I think everyone comes in, or almost everyone will come in and they're feeling anxious. They're not quite sure what to expect. Um, you know, it's a bit of a taboo topic. It is that I'm going to, you know, want to talk about or ask about. Um, and I think that I just go with the assumption that most people are fairly nervous when they come in. I've found a few ways that have helped with that. And one of it is that um, I do have a phone call with my clients before meeting them. And that means that they've just had a bit of a chat with me beforehand and they feel like there's sort of already a bit of a relationship forming. So that helps. I think that my attitude towards talking about these topics rubs off on other people. So, you know, if I'm not uncomfortable or there's no sort of, you know, feeling of judgment or um, shame or awkwardness or anything else, other people get into that flow quite quickly and easily. Um, and, you know, even when people are still a little bit more nervous, I'll often ask permission to talk about certain topics that might be a bit more challenging. So I would say something like, is it okay for me to talk about or ask about masturbation? Because that's one of those things. And people can quite comfortably say, you know, yes, or, you know, maybe later or, you know, whatever they're, they're sort of feeling about so that they're always, um, feeling safe and not being pushed into something that they don't want to talk about or they're not ready. Yeah, and I imagine that element of control in what's discussed gives them a bit more confidence. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, just, it's you know, that's what it's all about. It's about all of us being able to feel comfortable in talking about, you know, sex and relationships and, and the, the role that sex can play in relationships or when we're single or, you know, however it looks. It's just about... I think meeting the clients where they're at. Is it easier to treat a, an individual or a couple just on a general basis? You know, specifically I imagine the different cases you, you couldn't compare. but Yeah, it's a bit of a tricky one. Um, I Because there's such a wide range of different people that I see for different concerns. Uh, look, I'd say if, you, if you're in a relationship already, um, it's great if the partner can, you know, take part as needed in, in that therapy and to sort of, you know, tackle it together. That's certainly going to make my job easier and make progress a lot easier. Um, if they're, if they're currently single, um, and that's not a viable option, um, or they're, you know, early into a new relationship and that's not something that they feel that they want to, you know, involve their partner in it, um, I just, I'm just going to work with what I've got. So there's a lot of people. So sometimes partners aren't aware that, you know, um, that they've come to see me and that they just want to sort of talk about different things that they want to manage on their own. Um, sometimes partners want to have absolutely nothing to do with the therapy. That's what um, I was wondering about. Yeah. And that can be really, really challenging. Um, yeah. And so it also depends, I guess, if you're, if you're single and ultimately the problem is related to your interactions with um, more casual sort of encounters, that can be a bit of 
a bit more challenging because I'm not quite sure that I can kind of control how the the other person's going to react or respond to certain situations. And you can get into a bit of a tricky spot where we can progress to a certain point with therapy, but then there's going to be a bit of a jump when they're actually sort of putting this into practice. Mm. So we still try to, you know, reduce that as much as possible, um, you know, and there's ways that we can do that. But it's it's just one of those things you kind of have to work with what you've got, whatever comes through the door. Yeah, it makes sense that a couple would be a little bit easier because you could do all the talking and then send them off with, a bit of homework, I'm using quotations, yep. and they can go and implement what you've t- spoken about throughout the, the time until the next visit. But, yeah, an individual, you know, you could talk as much as you want, but until they actually get out there and put it in practice. It's well, the individuals really still get a whole lot of homework too. Oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> it's just more solo homework. Oh, okay, yeah. Do you, do you often have couples where... I mean, straight when you said that, the stereotypical, my mind of a couple coming and the husband not wanting to be there, being dragged by their wife, is that, is that true? Would it vary? I think it's probably about, I don't know, 50-50. I think that um, sometimes there are, there are wives who um, are not really on board, um, you know, and I think it kind of depends on maybe more likely to be what the concern is about. Okay. Um, but you know, honestly, I think that they're less common. So most couples sort of go, yeah, we need some help. We've tried to work through this on our own. We've run into some dead ends. We just need to try to find a pickle, a way out of this pickle. And, you know, we just need a bit of help um, and some guidance in doing that. I imagine that that's the big decision is, is coming to a consensus like at home and deciding we need external help. If you're, yes. if you're dragging someone along, there's there's even more problems there. You know, if they don't identify there's, a, there's an issue. Well, it's a bit of a stigma. I mean, not just talking about sex, but also, you know, this is this is a private topic between the two of us. And do we really want to let a stranger into that dynamic? And yeah. people can sometimes feel really uncomfortable about the idea of that. But honestly, by the end of the first session, most people are quite happily chatting away and talking about all sorts of things that they've never been able to talk about or, you know, they're they're often really surprised in themselves in their ability to kind of openly talk about things and have those new conversations or just new ideas. Why do you think we have this sort of stigma over this sort of topic? Like I'm, I'm also thinking at the same time, you know, parenthood also has that kind of stigma to it where we're often parents are reluctant to ask for help because they're possibly the same reason as, as sexual needs or, or, or that's not the right word, but you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. There's kind of a, a worry or a judgment concern there that people don't reach out and ask for help. No, I think they don't. And I think, you know, um, I think we're dealing with two taboos. One is, a, is that, you know, it's kind of falling in that potentially mental health um, topic which people don't generally um, talk comfortably about. We need to talk about it a lot more. Um, and there's also sort of that the clash with that sex taboo where people don't often talk about, you know, having these, these proper conversations with people. When did you know this was the profession for you? Look, oh, God, that's always sort of – I don't think that I can kind of pinpoint it so much down to one thing, you know, um, I I was and still am a registered nurse. I've worked in theatres, in gynaecology and general surgery and a lot of different areas. So, you know, 
the ability to kind of comfortably talk about anatomy and physiology um, has been something that I've been, you know, exposed to and um, I'm very, very comfortable in that area. Um, and then, you know, sort of looking back, I think I've been really lucky that I come from a family where sex was talked about um, and it was, uh, you know, in a positive context. Um you know, and I think I just sort of got to a point in my career where I thought, well, what do I do with this nursing and, you know, can I sort of do anything more? And if I do think about having um, maybe possibly a career change, what would it be? And looking back, I sort of thought I'd been told by so many sort of friends and family that, um, hey, you know, you should do this professionally when I was giving advice about sex that it just sort of occurred to me, I thought, well, I wonder if that's actually even a career vocation or is, is that actually even an option? Okay. Started doing some Googling, just, you know, got in contact with a couple of people, found out a, a bit more about it and next thing you know I was enrolled to go back to uni. Wow. How long have you been a, a sex therapist for? Uh, a few years now, yeah. Wow. And, yeah, and it's been great. It's been something, it sounds like it's your passion, it's the spot where you were meant to be. I love it. Absolutely love it. It combines everything that I, I love about nursing in being able to help people um, and sort of, you know, problem solve and get the job done. And it's just so rewarding being able to, I guess, you know, help support people and guiding them to a better place. Mm. And that's that's just a wonderful, um, you know, you're tired at the end of the day, but you also come home and you think, that's not a day wasted. You know, there are all these people that um, are very, very grateful for that support and help and the, being able to give them a place to be able to talk openly about sex. Yeah. I, I often wonder when, when professionals say that they're tired at the end of the day. Um, in my day job, I'm a teacher and I always say I'm tired at the end of the day, but I'm mentally tired. Like my, my patience is often spent. And so I attribute that to mental, mentally tired. Would you be the same way, mentally tired, emotionally tired? What What is it that, that is kind of drained by the end of the day? Um, definitely mentally. Um, it kind of feels like, I don't know if this is a great analogy, but it feels like you've almost got this parallel connection with somebody going. And so on one hand, your brain is very much connected and thinking about what your client is talking about. So it's a very kind of micro therapy. You're very much, you're, you're paying attention to body language. You're listening to um, things that are coming out. You're responding to those. So it's very much kind of plugged in and connected with a patient. And then on the other hand, there's almost like this macro therapy type approach where it's like an aerial view where you're thinking, okay, so they've said this and they said this last session and, you know, how does that all sort of fit in together and where are we trying to go? So it's almost like a sort of an aerial view of um, the past, the present and the future all in yeah. one shot at the same time. So having that kind of that parallel experience running, you know, for eight hours continuously is really exhausting. Yeah, especially if you're trying to recall what they said in, you know, previous sessions that happened, you know, weeks ago, that must yeah. be that real drain. It, it can be, yeah, it can be, but then it's so wonderful when you can kind of start putting these puzzle pieces together and things start clicking into place. And that's where the joy comes from it. 
Yeah. 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 That's the joy and the breakthroughs. And, you know, you, it's, it's a bit like kind of like a ball of string. Sometimes um, these problems have existed for quite a while and, you know, the clients have kind of done their best to try to fix things or, you know, whatever. But sometimes it feels a little bit like that ball of string's gotten a bit more knotted over time. So, you know, sometimes they come in and they go, right, here's this ball of string and there's all these factors that are kind of tangled up now in it and you've just got to kind of untangle little bits at a time um, in order to kind of get them released from this situation that they're in and, and getting to the place where they want to go to. Okay. Um, of all the patients you see, how many of them are men dealing with faulty equipment? <laughs> I had to ask. <laughs> I just love this this term, faulty equipment. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I know it's I know it's a whole lot deeper than that, but I, you know, that's that's yeah. Yeah. Look. Um. Look, I'm just going to say I, I don't actually think that most of the time the equipment's faulty. Okay. <laughs> So, look, most of the time when I see guys come in, and we're talking about erectile dysfunction. Yes. Right? Normally, you know, they're either fit and healthy and they're, they're perfectly fine. There's no sort of physiological aspect that's um, contributing to this problem. You know, they're guys who are in their 20s and 30s and, you know, there's nothing wrong with mm. the actual equipment itself. Um. And so it's actually sort of, it's about that headspace that they've gotten themselves into and they've sort of gotten locked into this, um, you know, this self-doubt and this anxiety and, you know, the questions and I'm going to monitor and uh, is is things going well? What if they don't go well? What am I going to say? How am I going to respond? You know, all of that. And so it's actually breaking them out of that thinking cycle more than there's actually nothing wrong with their equipment. Um. I wanted to ask you about sex education in school um, because being a teacher, I've had to teach sex education a couple of times and um, those sort of experiences have always opened my eyes, especially, you know, I compare when I do sex education with with a year six class or a year five class compared to when I was a, a student myself, the amount of terminology and words that kids know now but perhaps don't fully understand always blows my mind. And I wondered, um, did you think we should be teaching sex more explicitly in schools earlier on? Can I clarify what is what is explicitly? I guess both. Well, as as the grades go on, we end up teaching kids about their bodies and the different parts and things like that. But I guess, I guess, is year six too late to start? introducing that massive topic should it be something that's I guess more ingrained in the in their children's lives like you said earlier on that you were part of a family that was very open with sex you knew you know whatever that that meant but I've also come across people who are the same instance um my family was completely the opposite we were kind of waspy so (laughs) we didn't know too much about sex so by the time I got to year six it was a completely new thing it was like the cloth had been unveiled on something I'd never known about before should that be encouraged more parents talk to their kids and and show that mummy and daddy love each other and connect or yep absolutely your thoughts on that um I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with two answers to that one. Um, one is based on sort of more of a global perspective. Okay. 
Um, I think if we look at, for example, um, the US that has traditionally often involved an abstinence-only model of sex education, um, and we compare that to perhaps the other extreme, which is, you know, some more of those Scandinavian countries and how sex education has been addressed in both of those those countries. And we've got two really, really different outcomes. When we're pushing an abstinence-only agenda and we're not going to talk about it, so it's a really con- conservative um, discussion where you're it, you're more talking about well here's the body here's the physics here's the how a baby you know is made and this is you know cellular di- division and yeah, like biology yeah menstrual cycles and then we're going to throw a whole lot of STIs in there to scare people and you know mm. unplanned pregnancies and everything else what is the outcome of that versus the Scandinavian countries which actually start really really young. And they start talking about things like, let's name the body parts, let's talk about consent, let's talk about, um, you know, what a healthy relationship actually looks like. Let's give them the tools that they can actually have and make those decisions. And the outcomes couldn't be more different. The Scandinavian countries, which bring this stuff in far younger, they have a far lower rate of unplanned pregnancies, of STIs, they have an older um, average age of first sexual debut compared to the STI rates, um, you know, unplanned pregnancy rates, um, you know, all sorts of issues that the US has got. So, and I think Australia is somewhere in between. Okay. So I think we've still got a way to go, but there is a lot of evidence to support that that fear of starting to talk to kids at a younger age um, will lead to, you know, their early experimentation, the evidence supports the contrary. Mm-hmm. If we actually give them that information and, you know, equip them with um, the ability to make informed choices in a safe way and having those conversations, they're actually more likely to um, delay that first sexual debut. Um, and when they do do it, it's a healthier sexual relationship um, and they have sort of the knowledge and equipment to be able to make those decisions for themselves. So is it almost the difference like the Scandinavian method is um, talking more about the emotional attachment to sex where the American is talking about the physical, biological act of sex and that's Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. So the other part of that answer would be my own personal experience and I'm a mum I've got two primary school age children um they are privy to perhaps you know um a bit more information than what would be normally expected at their ages um but since they were were tiny you know we were instilling the the foundation for consent yeah so you know, we were able to say, you know, if we were tickling them and they said, stop, I don't like it, well, we would stop immediately. And so we're starting to teach them about, well, what is consent? You know, and that's that's an easy thing. It's not even related to um, specifically to sex, but that's just part of that foundation healthy attitude. We've also talked to them about being able to specifically name their 
um, body parts with correct terms. Um, and that's been shown to help reduce the chances of, you know, sexual childhood sexual grooming that, you know, perpetrators of sexual violence, they'll often look at, you know, um, at a child who doesn't have open conversations at home. They're less likely to be able to talk about it, who don't necessarily know about, um, you know, it's more of a general, these are my privates than specifically what it actually is, or the terms might be sort of childlike or, um, you know, those children who are comfortable talking about sex, um, you know, are not as likely to, I guess, fall prey to those those people who are sort of out there looking. Yeah, they've got that open communication with some family member, hopefully both parents, and so, yeah, that, that communication's there. When it comes to dealing with couples, do you often come across problems like um, couples uh, having sexual issues because of different libidos? All the time. Yeah. <laughs> now, is from a, from a physical standpoint, do men and women have different libidos? <laughs> I think there's definitely the stereotype that we do. Um, Look, there's probably a bit of that. There is probably a bit of physics um, involved there because of the hormone testosterone. Um, So men do have higher levels of testosterone than women do, but women are more sensitive to the lower levels of testosterone. So it's kind of a bit like comparing apples and oranges. Okay. I think it's a lot more of it's to do with um, stigma and stereotypes and I think there's still that attitude that women should be more sexually reserved than men. So, um, and, you know, it's it's that kind of, you know, good girls don't but it's okay because boys will be boys. Mm, okay. So still that kind of difference in the gender, um, I guess, the way we see each gender. Yeah. I mean, I think... I think there's probably um, often women are coming in and they've got, I guess, more social inhibitions placed on them because of their gender than there are with men. And so sometimes that can be um, a question worth exploring and just sort of saying, well, you know, and how has that looked for you? What were those messages um, that you think you may not have received had you have been a man? Okay. So I think that the reality is that, you know, in my practice, I'd say probably about 40% of those mismatched libido situations are actually men with the lower libido. Really? Yeah. It's actually really quite high. It's not what you'd expect. Wow. And so what do you typically do for some, uh, a couple like that? The same thing I do with a female having the lower libido. Okay. I still want to explore what are those things that are contributing to that lower sex drive? And they're often the same issues that women are facing as well. So I don't think it needs to be exclusive. Mm. Um, for our listeners who, who are curious, I wondered, what would you say are the, the key components of a healthy sex life? Whatever works for people and their relationship. I guess that's been kind of the key to this discussion is that you know, everything's, everyone's different, everyone's needs are individualised and you need to really, whoever you're creating that connection with, you need to find out more about them so that you can connect with them on a, on a deeper level. Yeah, 
if I'm going to have to put it down to one thing, I'm going to say it's communication. And I know that's not what, you know, sells podcasts or, you know, <laughs> or, or TV ads no. or whatever else. It's like consent, you know, it's, it's all the same sort of thing. It's not sexy to talk about consent. You know, people sort of go, well, that's a boring topic to talk about. But actually it's really sexy because what is more exciting than a informed and willing um, partner where you don't have to worry about is this okay or is this not okay, mm. you know, you can actually just talk about it instead. Yes. Yeah. So consent is actually really sexy and that's going to be a major part of what is a healthy relationship. I see couples who have been in a long-term married, um, you know, monogamous relationship for years and years. And then I see other ends of the spectrum where they have some sort of open agreement and maybe it's a poly relationship, maybe it's a bit more broad than that. So what does it look like? Well, whatever works well for that, those, those people involved, that's, what, that's what's sort of a healthy thing. Well, I want to thank you for chatting to me today. It's been really interesting and enjoyable and um, I'm sure our listeners will get a lot of enjoyment out of hearing this. Oh, you're so welcome, Luke, and it's an absolute pleasure. I want to get people more talking about sex and relationships in their own lives. So whatever we can do to help generate those conversations, that sounds good to me. Fantastic. Thanks again. You're very welcome. Uh, Special thanks to Kim Robinson for giving up her valuable time to come on to the podcast and share her experiences and just wonderful. Uh, Thank you to you for listening. And if you could do me a favor, share this episode. Um, We're going to be taking a four week break after this Friday's episode, which is going to be another timeless movie. Mm, Is it going to be a timeless or an aged? Anyway, thank you so much for listening. And until next time. I'm Luke Ryan and bye.